0: Hi there, I'm Austin Hopkins
1: and I'm Haley Robinson
0: and this is the Wild Idaho Podcast coming to you from the Idaho Conservation League. The Idaho Conservation League is Idaho's leading voice for conservation, protecting the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the land you love.
1: Each month we'll be exploring a new topic or current event that impacts the environment in Idaho. Join us to learn about the work that we're doing and how you can get involved. Thanks for listening.
0: So welcome again to another episode of the Wild Idaho Podcast. I'm Austin Hopkins, and I'm joined here with my co-host.
1: I'm Haley Robinson. I'm the Development and Marketing Associate here at ICL.
0: And Haley and I are joined with ICL's very own... Jonathan Oppenheimer, the Government Relations Director. Nice. I guess people on the podcast can't see my hands when I point <laughs> to you guys. I need to remember this. Um, it, is, it is August. It's hot, but it's also summertime. Um, and the other day Haley and I were chatting about some of our childhood memories, um, thinking back fondly to, you know, just being out of school, riding our bikes around, exploring, um, doing all the things that are great in summertime. And, And now as adults doing those same things, um, but having bigger adventures, you know, getting out in the woods, doing some hiking, some backpacking, floating our favorite rivers, um, running our favorite trails, all that stuff. And, And the conversation quickly turned to not all the things that we're looking forward to in the summertime but all the things that keep us from living out summer to its fullest Um, and the two notable things were fires wildfires and smoke impacts from air quality Um, and then also these toxic algal blooms that we're seeing um, impact some of our water bodies and so that's we just thought that's the goal for today let's Not to be Debbie Downers here, um, or Drew Downers, not to like put it all on the the females there, but, uh, you know, let's talk about how these we're seeing these increasingly more frequent environmental concerns impacting our summer uh, fun.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a good place to start to talk about kind of the past and how we got here because... Austin and I were both wondering if we we're having selective memories in this idea that when we were kids riding our bikes in the summer that we didn't have multiple weeks during the year where they said please stay inside. The air quality is so low, and um, so Op, I'm hoping you can shed some light on that and tell us a little bit about like has this always been a thing? Is it a is it getting more severe? Is it black and white from how long ago? When did this become such a big issue?
2: Well, I mean, we've obviously always had fires in Idaho. I mean, there's there's um, you know, a, a a long history of of fire, um, you know, operating both in the rangelands down in the lower elevation and sagebrush and grasslands and in the southern part of the state, as well as in uh, central and northern Idaho, where you've got forests. And so, you know, these are systems that are adapted to fire. But there is no doubt that over the last, you know, I'd I'd say thirty years in particular, we've seen a, a pretty noted uptick in the uh, length of fire season and how dry it's getting, um, you know, just some of the, some of the extent and severity of fire season has certainly changed. Uh, And I think there's a couple of things that are driving that. But, um, you know, just just to throw it out there, I think that it's not a selective memory. And I think that you're right that, um, well, I mean, you guys might have, uh, you know, been kids more in the 90s than in the 80s, (laughs) like me. uh, But back in the 80s, you know, we didn't see uh, months and months of of guaranteed smoke across the the inland northwest and and even the the coastal northwest. And so we're definitely seeing bigger fires. Uh, I mean, I think... Every single state in the West uh, can claim the largest higher fire in recorded history is within the past decade or so. So,
0: And that that's kind of just an interesting component to this, is that this isn't an Idaho thing. This isn't, uh, you know, this every state in the West is impacted by this. And we all kind of co-contribute to each other's problems. It's right. kind of, um, I don't mean to cut you, cut you off on your thought process there, but how is the management, is it like, Are all these states working together? Are they working against each other?
2: You know, I don't really think they're working against each other. I mean, obviously the wind is generally coming from the west to the east. Uh, I mean, You can can legitimately blame California. We can blame Californians. This is is a case where, uh, you know, at least, and especially this year, a lot of the smoke that we've been seeing uh, in Idaho filling up the valleys over the last couple weeks has been uh, largely from California fires. I mean, they've got um, I don't even know at last count how many fires they have burning there. I know that one that is burning, I think it's the car Fire, is the largest ever in state-recorded history. I think it was wow. like pushing a 1,000 square miles, um, which is, uh, if I'm doing my math right, uh, over 600,000 acres. Um, pretty ginormous fire. And so, uh, you know, I mean, what's driving that, I think, are a number of things. And actually, Idaho, well, we can get to this a little bit later, but I think Idaho is a little bit better positioned in terms of um, some of the potential for big fires um, because of some of the historic fires that we've had. And so, uh, but I'll get back to that. But um, but certainly, uh, you know, just the role that climate change is playing in uh, extending the fire season, more costly seasons, harder to control fires, coupled with a century of fire suppression where, basically fires weren't allowed to play their natural role and as a result brush built up and especially in some of the lower elevation kind of what we think of as our ponderosa pine and dry site forests those are really the ones that are most severely most highly departed from their historic fire regime and so those are the ones where we're seeing really more uh uncharacteristic wildfire behavior but so it it does and then as you get up into the higher elevation you tend to get um you know historically and naturally adapted to more severe or high-intensity fire. And so those are fires that you're you you know you're waiting on snow or rain to put them out or that they just burn out of fuel. I mean, if they get to a spot that's burned previously or in some cases a river or a highway is enough of a fuel break to stop it. But uh, as we've seen in a number of instances uh, in Idaho locally here with the Pioneer Fire as well as across the West where they think they're going to be able to hold it at a highway or they think they're going to hold it at a river, Sometimes a river and a highway where you've got like a 200 foot wide or more fire break and the fire just rolls right over it.
0: What was it? Sorry, go
1: ahead. Well, I was gonna ask um, so I've heard this concept of like the fire suppression for decades causing this buildup of fuel. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that in 10 years we'll have burned everything in the West and we'll be in a better position for that to not happen again? You know,
2: again? there are certainly some interesting numbers on that, and ICL did a report a couple years ago, and I was just going to see if I can find the table here real quickly. But, yeah, I mean, the the idea that, that um, Idaho is, is, you know, is in a little bit different position than some other states here is is noteworthy. And I'm just going to walk back to that a little bit. But, you know, Idaho was where they initiated what was called the, uh, it had a number of different names, prescribed natural fires, wildland fire use, wildland fire use for resource benefit. But basically recognizing the historic and natural ecological role that fires play and allowing some fires to burn, when they're burning in remote wilderness or roadless Mm -hmm. forests where they're not threatening communities. Um, Idaho is actually where that policy began. It was in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness um, back in the early 70s. Um, and so Idaho, and when you look at a fire history map of some of those, that central Idaho wilderness complex, the Selway Bitterroot and the central, in the Frank Church River of No Return wilderness, you see basically this, this mosaic of, uh, you know, literally hundreds of fires that have burned over the last 30 years or so. And so if there is anywhere in the West that is kind of within its natural, uh, fire regime range it is some of those central Idaho forests. And so what that's going to do is that's, it's probably going to, help more uh, for, you know, some communities like salmon and, and Missoula and some of the areas in the Bitterroot in Montana just across the border. But where we've got these areas where if big fires roll into some of these areas that have burned, they're generally going to drop to the ground and, and they're uh, not going to cause a lot of problem. And so, uh, but back to your question that, that you know, at some point we will uh, kind of run out of some fuel to burn and and um, the, um, the, the number of, uh, or the amount of of the the Boise National Forest and this is a couple years old this was from 2012 but over 50% of the entire forest had burned uh, since 1985 and so, so the some it, some it, yeah that's just the Boise National Forest, forest. some of those areas were potentially <coughs> double counted where you've got some fires that burned into other ones but but just to give it uh, you know some perspective on and, on and that was actually before the Pioneer fire so really we're probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% or more now uh, and on the Payette about 70% of the the uh, forest had burned between 1985 and 2012. So there's definitely um, potential for us to see some fire behavior and, and kind of fire severity moderating in the years to come because we've had a lot of fires in, in the past that have been able to, uh, you know, even if they were suppressed, still played some natural role in, in reducing some of the, the uh, fuels available for future fires.
0: Mm-hmm. Our, are other states given Idaho's history and kind of use of this policy have we seen other states adopt this method of uh, well I mean not so much I mean part of it is
2: just a, 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 on the basis of kind of geography right I mean we've got this big chunk of, of of designated wilderness in central Idaho and then you've got a whole network of roadless areas that that largely surround that so you've kind of got this this uh, island of Uh, kind of a fire island in some ways where you know fire can play a little bit more of its natural role there without a lot of the risks Mm -hmm. because one of the big things that they deal with in fire is not necessarily the risk of the fire burning out of a a, you know a prescribed area or, or kind of what they call their their MMA their maximum manageable area um it, it's really more about what kind of risk are you putting firefighters into? You know, okay. what, what kind of risk are you exposing them to? And so that's a huge concern now um, for the Forest Service. I mean, we've, you know, we, we can, you know, we can barely count the number of firefighters that have died, uh, you know, on the fire line, uh, you know, over the, the past several decades. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a real concern for the Forest Service that, you know, they don't want to be dropping people into steep slopes, you know rocky canyons with you know significant potential for fire risk um and dropping folks in there for for what you know i mean in the middle of the the frank church wilderness area there's there's not a lot of resources that they need to protect there and it's certainly not worth the risk of, of losing a firefighter's life to um you know prevent the fire from Going over one ridge and into the next when when there's not really any resources at risk there so so that's a big consideration when it comes down to it but other states just don't have that I mean sure you've got some small wilderness areas but in a lot of instances um, they don't have that flexibility because a they haven't they don't have this 30 or 40 year history of of a fire mosaic on the landscape um, that helps to moderate future fire behavior uh, and they also don't have those those uh, large wilderness areas that that provide provide you a little bit more of that insurance and flexibility that the fire isn't going to burn out of it and then burn up the town that's that's uh, next door. Hmm.
1: Is the danger for firefighters exacerbated in like these weeks where we're reaching over 100 degree temperatures so they're not only like standing next to a fire but like feels like the sky is on fire too. Oh yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean these are these yeah, but uh, so yes, they are Highly stressed and, and you know lots of heat exhaustion and exposure and other types of uh, you know kind of medical and other health risks that they focus, uh, face uh, certainly you know I mean Im- imagine you know hiking up basically a, a vertical slope with no trail with a you know 50, sixty pound pack on your back in one hundred degree heat I mean these are not these are not um, uh, you know things to be taken lightly um, and, um, and, and they're definitely faced with, you know, a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of hazards as a result. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's, it, you know, these guys know, they, they know what they're signing up for, but at the same time, uh, there's no reason to be dropping them into the middle of, of, you know, remote wilderness or roadless areas, um, you know, to protect a few trees that, that, uh, you know, are designed to burn, you mm-hmm. know, so, so there's, there's certainly a balance, but. You know, and really when it comes down to it, the, the, the problem isn't necessarily, uh, you know, forest burning. Um, those forests are adapted to fire and and really need fire to rejuvenate in a lot of cases. Uh, but it's really more about when we talk about fires burning out of these uh, forested areas and into areas where you've got homes and, and intermix and, uh, you know, Communities uh, mixed in with wildland fuels that, that can burn, and so so that's really one of the big issues that um, you know we've been encouraging the Forest Service and as well as local, state, and county authorities to focus on is not making the problem worse. The Headwaters Economics is a, a, a economics consulting firm based out of Montana, and they put out a study that that um, looked across the West and looked at how much of the private land within the wildland urban interface was developed. And what they found was, I think it was for Idaho, about 75% of the potential private land within the wildland urban interface has not yet been developed. And so we're standing at this critical juncture in Idaho where we could either make the problem a lot worse by sprinkling in homes throughout the wildland urban interface, making it harder for firefighters to do their job, putting them at increased risk, uh, as well as putting taxpayers uh, at risk for, for paying for these multi-million dollar fires to protect someone's homes. Um, or we can implement some smarter community planning to ensure that if people are going to build in these areas, that they're assuming some risks themselves, they're aware of it, and they're doing everything they can to make sure that it's safe for firefighters to get in and out, constructing their, their homes and structures with fire-safe materials, uh, and making sure that they've got adequate uh, water supplies for when that fire does eventually arrive.
0: Those are great tips. Um, I'm wondering, too, if, if you could expand a little bit on, um, you know, where we're at with managing fires both right now and into the future. I, I think you just summarized some great tips for potential developers. Um, what about groups like Forest Service or, or land managers, um, states dealing with this? You know, how, how can they best manage their forests? we know these things are gonna burn is there anything we can do other than just watch them burn um well yeah i mean there's well i mean in the
2: middle of fire season there there aren't a whole lot of options i mean Mm -hmm. when you've got red red flag conditions you've got you know significant winds you've got you know humidities that are in the single digits and you've got temperatures that are over 100. I mean, when you get a fire uh, that's up and running, there's not much you can do other than sit back and and watch a little bit. Um, That's not to say that they can't do certain things. I mean, cutting fire line, using backfires, I mean, that's something that's pretty common in the Forest Service, where they try to burn out the material in advance of the front of the fire, so that when the fire arrives there, uh, there's no fuel for it to burn, and then they can do some direct attack uh, on the fire. But In in so many instances, uh, I mean, it is quite literally, you know, on these big fires, it's spending a million dollars a day or more and really waiting for the rain or the snow to arrive. And so there is, I think, uh, there is a certain point at which fires get to, um, you know, they create their own weather. Uh, they're, uh, you know, really take on a mind of their own. I uh, just watched a video uh, the other day of a, a fire tornado that blew right over some, some uh, firefighters down in Colorado. Uh, I mean, these are, the, we are seeing certainly conditions that, that, um, you know, are largely unprecedented in in recorded history. Uh, And so when it comes down to it, again, as I mentioned before, kind of risk management, uh, the Forest Service and other federal agencies are very uh, thoughtful about when and where they're going to put firefighters in in harm's way. And so in a lot of cases, it's it's, uh, keeping an eye from the air. Um, and uh, eventually when these fires get really big waiting for, waiting for snow or rain to put them out. But so there is, a, there, there is a, I, I think, a need to reassess, um, especially on these big fires, what we're getting, what kind of bang for our buck we're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it really worth spending a million dollars a day if, if we're just waiting for the rain to come yeah. in the fall?
1: I have two things. First of all, the phrase fire tornado is terrifying. Mm-hmm. I never even knew that was a real thing. Oh mm-hmm. my God, uh, that's just an observation. The second thing is I was doing some googling before we were podcasting here, and I saw that um, most wildfires are man made caused mm-hmm. man made mm-hmm. caused mm, there's a better way to say that mm-hmm. uh, and it was like according to Smithsonian it was eighty four percent National Park Service said that up as many as ninety percent of these wildfires are caused by people mm-hmm. can you talk about that yeah,
2: a bit? so there was you know historically there was kind of this number that was thrown around that east of the Mississippi. You had about a 75-25 split where 75% of the fires were human-caused and 25% were natural. Um, and natural, what we're talking about in most cases, lightning. is lightning. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few instances where rocks falling down a mountain can you know, cause a fire, but uh, pretty few and far between. And, and and then west of the Mississippi, it was the inverse of that. And it was about 25% human-caused, 75%. Um, uh, naturally ignited fires and so uh, but it was just a, a few years ago that that um, that there was some reassessment done of that where they've determined that really most of the fires in the West were actually human caused as well, which I think is, you know, we've seen a lot of population growth in the West. We've seen a lot of expansion into the wildland urban interface. Um, and, uh, and it was just a matter of time before the West really caught up with the East. And so I, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the number is right now, but the point of it is, is that a lot of the fires that are occurring, both, both in the, in the Western U S and in the East are preventable and, and things that, that we, uh, should be able to uh, prevent in the first place through better education, making sure that people are putting out their uh, their uh, campfires and making sure that their trailers are uh, not dragging a chain and that they don't have a, a car that's throwing out sparks or something like that. So a lot of those are preventable, but, but certainly, uh, you know, there, there's still a climate, uh, you know, angle to that because, you know, it's one thing if you get a fire to start and then, you know, you've got weather and soil and, and uh, conditions that aren't conducive to its spread. But when you have climatic conditions as a result of human-induced climate change um, that are exacerbating that, then you get fires that are much harder to control and, and end up burning more area. And so um, regardless of whether they're human-caused or naturally-caused, there's, there's things that we can do to try to address that both to uh, reduce the risk of a fire ignition as well as to address some of the root causes of climate change that we're seeing.
0: Hmm. You know, uh, I, I want to pivot here a little bit just so we hit on both of these topics. And my mind, talking about these fires, talking about these 100 degrees heat, especially talking about some of these firefighters who have to go out and fight these blazes, the first thing that I think of is they just need a place to cool down. They need to go to their favorite lake and, and jump mm-hmm. in it. Um, but we're also kind of pivoting here to the waterfront. Not only do we have hazards uh, disrupting our summer activities from the air quality and the, and the fire, but... We're we're seeing more and more hazards related to our water quality, um, specifically with with some of these toxic algae blooms. And before we dive into that, I was just hoping if we could just start like, what is a toxic algae bloom, and Mm -hmm. how is it different than the algae you buy at the beauty supply store? Mm -hmm. I think they sell algae, (laughs) right? Isn't it like a face? I I don't know. I haven't. I'm not
2: sure where you're doing your shopping, Austin. (laughs) But uh, if you're buying algae, yeah, 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 I'm pretty
0: sure that's a thing.
2: Okay, we'll Google. It. I'll take yeah, your okay. word on. Yeah. I'll take your word on that, um, but yeah. So I mean, what we are seeing, uh, and you can speak to this as well, um, is uh, you know an increase in the occurrence of these harmful algae blooms. And what they are, it's, it's actually a, a blue-green algae, or a cyanobacteria, um, that uh, creates these toxins as a byproduct, which can be extremely harmful to humans as well as pets and animals. And, and one of the big questions that I've got is, what is the impact on some of the fish? Uh, which I don't even know that we have some of that data, but it's a, a, a something that, that they are still learning more about exactly how and why they're creating these toxins, um, because there are instances where you sometimes get an algae bloom that doesn't create these toxins, and then other ones that do. And so I think there's still a lot of... Um, s- scientific understanding that is still developing on this topic. But at the end of the day, what it is, is when we get pollution levels in rivers and lakes or reservoirs uh, that exceed a certain threshold combined with water temperatures, we're getting these large outbreaks and these blooms um, that are toxic to humans and, and animals. And so it's a, it's a real concern because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something, again, something we're still learning to, to, you know, what exactly is causing it and, and how, they're, how they're developing. Um, but, uh, you know, I have concerns about, you know, what happens when it's right on the cusp of a bloom and, you know, there might be nothing visible. Is it still present a danger? I mean, there's just a lot of questions that are out there. And so, um, but at uh, the end of the day, it's, it's, again, too much pollution in a river not enough water and too high temperatures and that creates this literally a deadly mix.
0: And so, I mean, similar to the the discussion we just had on fires, I mean, this is heavily influenced by climate change. Yeah. Uh, I mean, driving up temperatures, less water availability, and then overlaying that is is human interaction with the landscape. What Mm -hmm. pollution are we adding to the river? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how are we diverting water? How are we taking water out of it? Um, Any... I, I know this is kind of a developing topic, but any management or, or anything folks can do to...
2: Well, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I mean, one of the big things is is just a, a certain level of awareness. It's, mm-hmm. You know, keeping an eye on your local lake or reservoir um, where you might like to recreate, and if you see something that doesn't look quite right, chances are something isn't quite right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if the, if the water is turning purple or red or uh, some kind of brightly hued color uh do not get in it uh do not let your dog get in it do not let your kids get in it and if you see your neighbor getting in it i'd advise you to encourage them not to depending on how you feel about your neighbor um but um But, uh, you know, there's also a a Bloom Watch app that's available um, that uh, you can download onto your phone and take a photo of any questionable water body, and that automatically uploads it and sends it to DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality here in Idaho. Um, to uh, go out and do some analysis and see if there is actually a a bloom going on and whether or not it presents a public health risk. DEQ also maintains a uh, website where they list all of the advisories and closures that are in place for the state. When I checked it yesterday, there were six different reservoirs and lakes that were on that list. Um, across the state, I think it was Fernand Lake and uh, Little Camas uh, down in the south, and then uh, Brownlee Reservoir and, and a handful of others. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I mean, a big thing is awareness. But you know, another is is um, you know just making sure that you're paying attention and plugging into some of these different you know efforts. When you talk to you know people on the street um, or people on the the shores of, of a lake or a reservoir uh, and say, hey, have, have you paid a lot of attention to the most recent TMDL uh, in the mid-snake? Um, <laughs> you know, chances are they're going to look at you kind of funny, but if you let them know that, hey, it's, it's really important that we control the amount of pollution that is coming into this reservoir, this lake, um, because what that's doing is it's resulting in this literally, a, a, you know, hazardous to your health Uh, potentially toxic or fatal uh, reaction if you touch this water or if you were to ingest the water in any way, um, I I think, you know, people would pay a little bit more attention. And so I think recognizing that linkage between some of the regulations and some of the uh, limits that we impose upon Polluters in this state, and making sure that folks understand that there is a direct relationship between the amount of pollution that is allowed to go into our rivers and streams and lakes, and uh, these harmful algae blooms. I think you know when people start to make that connection, I think that's when we can start getting getting some attention and and uh, focusing some some resources on this issue because it's really resources is is what what it, what is needed to address this. It's going to be state department of environmental quality funding monitoring efforts going out and taking water samples more regularly working with the Um, uh, uh, public health districts across the state, making sure that they're aware of it. You know, it's one thing just to notify people of a closure. It's quite another to try to prevent that closure from occurring in the first place. And so that's really what we're focused on at the Idaho Conservation League, is trying to do everything we can to prevent the pollution that is leading to um, these harmful algae blooms, as well as addressing some of the the core uh, elements and what's causing climate change as well.
1: I've also heard that pet waste can be a large contributor to the pollution in water bodies, like increasing the <coughs> phosphorus and nitrogen levels, I think, uh, and making it less safe and like creating a habitat for these algae blooms. Have you heard mm-hmm. anything about that? You
2: know, I remember hearing something about... Uh, I thought it was more related to E. coli uh, and some of the E. coli bacterial... Mm-hmm. Um, Contamination of, of water waste associated with pet waste, but but yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 everything. It's it's human waste, it's pet waste, it's it's uh, you know overfertilization, it's it's you know all kinds of different sources. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, what's what what we know for sure is that we're seeing an increase in the occurrence of these in Idaho as well as across the country, um, and that the way that we can control it is um, by reducing the amount of pollution. Increasing the amount of clean water and and ultimately over the long run addressing some of the root causes of climate change uh, That are heating up the globe
0: hmm. You so we're coming up um, close to the end here. We, we try to keep these around 30 minutes So I'm gonna kind of have a closing question and we'll just go around the table here, but I read I forget um, Where exactly I read this this morning, but it was talking about 2018 through the lens of climate change, you know, we're seeing massive wildfires throughout the western U.S. We're seeing a heat wave that's been attributed to a number of deaths uh, in Japan. Um, you know, Globally, we'll, we're really starting to see some of these impacts from climate change. And there was a quote, and I'm paraphrasing this, so I apologize to whoever originally said this, but they essentially said, you know, 2018 is going to be a pivotal moment where we switch from from studying climate change and, and predicting the impacts to actually seeing the impacts and living the impacts um and i'm just you know let's just go around the table and i'm just curious what you're kind of closing here what are your thoughts on that what do you think about that globally what do you think about that with idaho um yeah just anything that comes to mind so anyone want to start us off
2: well i mean i would say that that um i mean it's it, it kind of sneaks up on you, right? I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to say, well, you know, we're really recognizing, you know, now the impacts are finally here. I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways you can look back and look at 1988, the Yellowstone fires. I mean, that's something that Rocky Barker, a former environmental reporter from the Statesman, you know, recognizes as one of the real signals of climate change, this significant fire occurring in, in Yellowstone, an area where we hadn't seen uh, fire behavior like that. Um, but then you know, in 1994, we had another big fire year in Central Idaho in the Payette, and that's when President Clinton came out and toured the Payette. And then 2000, we had the massive fires in the Bitterroot as well as down on the Salmon Chalice. Um, and, and then we've just kind of seen a you know a, a steady drumbeat of significant fire years: 2007, 2012, 2015. I mean, it's it's the, the the impacts are there. I think if you look hard enough, I think what it might be is that those might have been kind of, you know, climate signals that were like waves lapping at the beach. You know, they were Mm. steady, they were there, but at some point you kind of get a a whole, uh, you know, kind of conglomeration of different effects that are just one after another. So it's like a tidal wave hitting us now where we're getting algae blooms, where we're getting fires, where we're getting, you know, heat waves with you know dozens or hundreds of folks dying in Europe and you know I mean unprecedented conditions and I think it's just the the signals are getting so loud that it becomes impossible to to try to drown them out or to try to argue your way around them a little bit and that it's just kind of become so convincing uh so many of these different impacts that that you can't really deny it any longer.
1: Yeah, going off that, I think it's just getting harder and harder for kind of the average Joe to ignore. Like, it's no longer a hypothetical, someday something's going to happen. It's like, oh, there's two weeks in the summer where you literally shouldn't go outside and breathe the air. You know, people are used to, I think a lot of Idahoans are used to in the winters. you know, advisory warnings about, like, it's really cold outside, probably don't go out there. But it seems increasingly more common that now our... Our year is scheduled around the couple weeks where it's too cold to go outside and now the couple weeks where it's too hot and smoky to go outside. And that's changing how people live and how people recreate and how people interact with their environment and their homes. And I think that makes it more like you're living it now. It's not a hypothetical someday this is going to be a big deal. It's like this is affecting your life on a daily basis or a yearly basis now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for that. I, um, you know, my, my parting thoughts on this subject is just... You know, I think all of us here at at Idaho Conservation League understand the threat that climate change presents. And, um, you know, we're going to work tirelessly to to protect not only Idaho and Idahoans, but do our role in in kind of the uh, global stuff, too. Um, I just want to give a quick shout-out. We really want to make sure you guys stay safe out there. So we kind of open with talking about this is summertime. We all want to go out and be having fun. Um, Please do so safely and responsibly. And, And what I mean by that is... You know, we've talked about these algal blooms. We've talked about these forest fires and, and poor air quality. Do your best to check in and do some research before you head out on your amazing adventures. Um, check in on air quality. Check, check in on those uh, recreational water algal bloom advisories. Um, just, just know before you go. Um, and, and, and be prepared to, to handle whatever kind of health advisories come your way. Um, and hopefully they don't ruin your trip too much.
1: And now that Austin's done a very friendly PSA, I'll do a self-serving announcement, which is if you're listening to this podcast and you like it, we would love for you to review it on iTunes, share with your friends, uh, get back to us, comment on it, tell tell us what topics you want to hear about, um, and give us a little love if you want us to keep doing these episodes.
0: Absolutely. Great point. Well, with that, Oppenheimer, thank you so much. Thank you. As always, Haley, you nailed it.
1: Thanks, dude. You too. Nice.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone who listened, um, and we will see you guys next time.